Good morning. I'll just wait. It's okay. We like it when you talk. Okay, good morning. I'm Trisha, by the way. I didn't introduce myself, but I am Trisha. And I'm married to Troy, who usually is up here. And so I usually sit down there, which is where I'm much more comfortable. So, um, But I get to get up here this morning and talk to you about our series that we've been doing, which is Revealed. It's looking back to the future. And what, it's, what it is, in case you haven't been here, is that we're looking at the Old Testament stories and we're seeing how they point to Christ. How do the Old Testament stories, why are they included in the Bible, and how do they give us kind of an inkling of Christ? And uh, so this past week, Troy and I stopped at um, someone who attends here. She's an artist, and she wanted us to see her work. And when I walked in, I set my purse down because she had this awesome dog. And so I wanted to pet the dog, and I set my purse down, and then we left. And I forgot my purse at her house, so she called Troy. We were a few minutes away, and I, we went back and got it. <laughs> and... I, went, ran, I ran in her little studios in her garage, and then I came out, and because you know how attached we are to our phones, I have to see, did anyone call me in those 10 minutes? And so I pull my phone out, and I'm doing this, and I'm walking towards the car, and I'm not looking up, and I seriously, I don't know why I didn't see the stump that was sitting like this far out of the ground, but I mean, I hit that thing, and Troy can see me from the car, and I fly forward, and I do, you know, that ugly uh, legs up, my purse, you know, I almost swing, swing out and you know how you recover and you look back like she's got a big huge window that looks out over and I'm like did she see that I was so embarrassed and I look forward and Troy's in the car like this oh my gosh and I think of that as a great illustration of how sometimes we read our Old Testament stories and we think oh that's a cool story but we don't look ahead enough. We don't look up and we don't see what is it pointing toward or what is the stump in front of me that I'm going to trip on. And it's so obvious. But we miss it, don't we? So I don't want you to miss what this story this morning is going to point to. So I'm going to ask you a question. Um, what do you love? That's my question this morning. What do you love? So I want you to answer this in this way. Um, would you say, I love my dog? How many of you would say, I love my dog? Notice Troy's not raising his hand. <laughs> How many of you would say, I love my cat? There we go. I don't have a cat. We had a cat, but we don't have cats anymore. We did love our cats. Did you raise your hand for that? You didn't. Okay. <laughs> How many would you say, I love chocolate? Oh, yes. Oh, me too. Okay. How many of you would say you love a really good bag of potato chips, like really yummy, salty. See, they're, they're the opposites. Usually, if you love chocolate, then you don't really like the salty things, or the opposite. Okay, how about theater popcorn? Yeah, I think they have something in there that's addictive, and I'm not sure what that is, so I don't touch it, but Troy always, he cannot pass that up. How about a good book? I we would say, I love a good book. I love to curl up with a good book. Yep, that's me. If you're not catching on, these are all my favorite things. Um, how about your pillow? Yes. I love my pillow. Okay, you guys are going to totally judge me. I have this pillow I got from before we were married. <laughs> it was a dollar. It was, I didn't have any money. And I bought this pillow, and I wash it, like, a lot in the hot water with bleach and all that just 
you know, kill all those, I don't know, they say there's bugs in your pillows, I don't know. But I try to kill them off, because I cannot give up this pillow. It's lumpy and disgusting, but I love it. I sleep, it just, oh, I love it. Anyway, don't tell anyone that. Okay, how about tomato basil soup at chives? If you have not tried that, oh, that's addictive too, okay. So here's another one. How about your running shoes? I don't like running, so, okay. I just, yeah. You're cool. I wish I could do that. I don't like it. How about your garden? No? Oh, my gosh. I had a lot of gardeners in the last one. I love my garden. How many of you would say you love Troy? <laughs> that was a trick question. <laughs> he wasn't even looking up to see who raised their hands. Okay, the reason why I asked this question is because I think in our culture, it's probably one of the most um, underestimated and overused word in our culture. Because we use the same word for theater popcorn as we do our spouses, as we do God, as we do God's love for us. And so you can see how that word gets diminished. It it's becomes ordinary. It um, doesn't have that depth. It isn't extraordinary anymore because we use it for everything. Ah, I love this. You know, you have your dramatic friends, you know, that go on Facebook. I love this. You know, and you think, oh, gosh. You know? But I do love people like that. <laughs> we do have a couple drama queens in our house, and I'm one of them. Um, but when I started to study this story that we're going to study this morning, I noticed that there was um, a different kind of love that described it. And one of the gals who, Marilyn, a lot of you guys know who Marilyn is, who's on our teaching team, when we came to talk about this story, she said to me, have you ever studied the word hesed? Do you guys know what that means, hesed? It's actually a Hebrew word that's used to describe the love of God, hesed. And then they also said that hesed is a word that describes this book that we're going to study this morning. And I thought, oh my goodness, I really need to look into this and find out what she meant by that because it has so much meaning and so much depth. And hesed is actually, this is one of the, um, oh, here, here's the word. So cool. Okay, hesed means this, that in general, hesed has three basic meanings that all interact together. This is what Vines writes, that there's strength, there's steadfastness, and there's love. And if you try to understand Hesed just with one of them, without suggesting all three of them, it loses some of its richness. In other words, if you just try to describe Hesed with the word love, and you don't include strength or steadfastness, it just becomes kind of sentimental. Kind of, it doesn't have that depth. It's just sentimental love, kind of like romance. But if you have Hesed with just strength and steadfastness and you don't include the love part of it, then it just becomes like a contract or uh, an exchange. But there isn't any emotion behind it. So you have to actually have all three. Here's another explanation of Hesed. Hesed, that Ralph Davis says, is it's not merely love, but it's loyal love. When you use the word loyal in front of it, that brings out a whole new meaning, has all different weight to it when you say loyal. It's not merely kindness, but it's, it's dependable kindness. We all love dependability, don't we? When someone says they're going to do something and they do it, dependable 
kindness. It's not merely affection, but it's affection that has committed itself. It's Hesed love. So when we attach that to God and his love for us, it gives us a whole different depth and richness and meaning. It makes it extraordinary, not just ordinary love like we talked about in the beginning. So love like that is very different. When I read the word loyal, I always think of those loyalty cards that you get. You know, how many of you guys have a lot of loyalty cards? I do. Like, I have a loyalty card for the Piggly Wiggly, which I get asked for every time, and I think it's attached to our old home numbers. I have to think what it is. And then I have loyalty cards for Petco and PetSmart, in case I'm near one of those. I have a loyalty card for Vons, which is the grocery store in California, in case I'm there and I need groceries, which has happened. Um, I have one for L Nails, Dick's Sporting Goods, DSW. I have a card for Air. Now, these aren't credit cards. These are just, hey, you came in and bought something. Let's punch the card, right? You guys all have these. I have one for Aerie, one for Vicky's, which, by the way, is Victoria's Secret. But when you have four daughters, we shorten that to go to Vicky's. Um, American Eagle, Shopco, Walgreens, CVS, Ace Hardware. How many of you guys have them for all the Starbucks, Kavarna, Luna, La Java? Yeah. You know, my purse, when they ask me, do you have that card? I'm like, I cannot carry all these cards. So that to me is like loyalty. But when, when God talks about this kind of loyal love, it's different. It looks different. Just bear with me as I read this. Uh, John Oswald describes this way, um, this type of loyalty. He says the word hesed speaks of a completely undeserved kindness and generosity done by a person who is in a position of power. That's very different. Like the other Hebrew words, hesed is not just a feeling, but it has action behind it. There's more to it than just a feeling. There's something that comes up behind it. It's action. It intervenes on behalf of a loved one. It comes to their rescue. Isn't that beautiful? Because hesed is often active, it's translated as mercy or loving kindness. But neither of these words fully convey that hesed acts out of unswerving loyalty, even to the most undeserving. Well, that includes all of us, right? It acts on our behalf. He goes on to describe that hesed is like a mom who spends all day after day after thankless day spoon-feeding and wiping up after a disabled child. It's as if you, they cannot do anything for themselves. It's, a, it's an actionable love. It's something that has motion to it. Hesed is love that, cannot be count, that can be counted on decade after decade. It's not about the thrill of romance, but the security of faithfulness. Isn't that beautiful? When you think about those things, it changes what your desires, is, your desires are. Then he goes on to say, I wonder if Hesed is becoming harder for people to grasp nowadays because love to us is dating and romance. We're inundated with it, whether it be the movies we watch or the TV shows we watch or the commercials that we see. That all says that love is all about this romantic feeling. It's just a feeling. But we focus on love only on the short term. I think lifelong loyalty is becoming more rare. You think of our families and the broken families that we have, and even in our church here. And it's hard for us to imagine a lifelong loyalty just because we're so surrounded by the complete opposite of it. So it's not surprising that we have a hard time 
imagining love that never ends. So I'm going to tell you about a story this morning. I'm going to get to that story. And it is the story of Ruth. So it's a very short story. There's four chapters in, the, in this book. And Ruth is like in the beginning of the Bible. If you guys want to grab a Bible, we'll just pretend we're all in my living room. You can get up when you need to. There's Bibles in the back and grab one. But I'm not going to actually read the story. I'm actually just going to tell the story. I'll grab a couple of verses here and there. But you're welcome to open it up and follow along if you'd like to. There's a lot more to the story that I won't be able to hit. Um, so let me introduce you to the characters. We'll bring them up here on stage. Um, the first character is Ruth. Well, because the book's written after her, so we'll include her. So she's Ruth. She's actually not an Israelite. She is a Moabite. She's from Moab, so she's a Moabite. That's important, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Then there's Naomi, um, and she is Ruth's mother-in-law. There's Elimelech. He's, she's, I'm sorry, he is Ruth's father-in-law, so Naomi and Elimelech are married, in case you didn't catch that. And then those two have two sons. One married Ruth, and the other one married the other daughter, which is Orpah, not Oprah. Um, so Orpah is Ruth's sister-in-law. And then the other character in our story is Boaz, and he um, is, also from, is also an Israelite. So he comes into the story a little bit later. So I'm going to tell you about the story here. I'm just going to um, go through it instead of having you guys read it. So Naomi Lemelech. Um, head out of Bethlehem because there's a big famine and they take their two sons and they head to Moab and it's quite a ways away and they hear that there's food there so they go there with their family and when they land there they're there for a little while and then right off the bat you'll read it right at the beginning of the story that Ruth, or Naomi's husband Elimelech dies he passes away and she loses her husband so now she has her two sons and she says to them we've got to get you married because we want our name to carry on and so they marry these two women, Ruth. That's how Ruth comes onto the stage. And then also Oprah or Orpah. And so those two get married, and then those husbands pass away also as well. So now we're left with Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And Naomi says, I... I I, um, I heard that there's food now back in Bethlehem. I think I'm going to head home. Um, there's really nothing for me here. And she tells the two daughters, why don't you guys stay here? Because honestly, the tradition for us would be you would have to wait for me to get married, then have a son, actually I have two sons, and then for them to grow up, and then you'd have to marry them and then have a son. And so to wait, that would be ridiculous. So she just says, you, guys, you should just stay here. I mean, these are your people. Your gods are here. Um, you should stay here. And so Orpah thinks that's a great idea. So she hugs them and kisses them goodbye, and she decides to stay. And then Ruth says to Naomi, no, I think I want to stay with you. And Naomi says, this is foolishness. You should stay here. This is your family. You should stay here. This, I have nothing for you. I can't promise you that there'll be any food. I don't even know where you would stay. Why don't you stay here? And this is what Ruth says to her. Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Because where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and I. And when Naomi realizes that Ruth is determined to go with her, she stops urging her to stay. 
This is really huge. I mean, we, we move around a lot nowadays. It, it's not unusual for us to move. I think our world has gotten smaller just because of technology and travel and things like that. But back then, this was a big deal. Um, for her to say, not only am I going to go with you, but she is also turning in her faith. She's saying, your people are now my people. Uh, I'm not any longer do I associate with being a Moabite. I am your daughter, and I want to go with you. So Naomi realizes, okay, I'm going to take this daughter back with me, but I don't know what it's going to be like. So they head back. And when you're a widow, you, don't, you, you, um, you basically become a beggar because you don't have land, uh, you don't have a job, and so you go along and try to find either food or someone that will take care of you. So they head back. They're back in Bethlehem. And when they get to Bethlehem, they settle, and Naomi right away says to Ruth, you have to get out there, and you have to start to glean in a field and get us some food. And so gleaning back then is where they would go behind a farmer and their workers, and the farmer and the workers, it was a common practice for them to leave some grain for women and people that are poor to come along, and then they get to pick. And then behind them is people like Ruth. Ruth is coming up now behind those gals and picking whatever she can find. So Naomi says, go find a field where someone isn't going to kick you out and see if you can glean there. So she goes out and she finds a, a field and she starts picking and they're very kind to her and they let her do that. And she's uh, moving along and then the owner comes along and he sees her from afar and he asks his worker, who is she and why is she here? And so he notices her. And it's funny, I think to myself instantly, and maybe you do too, that maybe she's beautiful. Maybe she's young and beautiful and, and he thinks she's beautiful. But then I think, well, maybe not. Maybe it's that God really actually opens his eyes to see her. And then I mentioned that the last service and somebody came up to me and said, Trisha, don't you think that possibly, and I think, I, I kind of agree with her. The story is so cool because you know who Boaz's mother is? Her mom is Rahab. I mean, his mom is Rahab. And she was the harlot that helped the Israelites um, when they came in and hiding them and getting them um, to come in. And so she has eyes to see things that others don't see. So don't you think she probably raised a son that might have eyes to see the need and the hurt around them? So I thought, wow, that's so cool. Because it's the stump in the middle of the, you know, where I would have tripped right over it and not noticed it. So I thought that was such a cool observation. So he notices her. And he says, who is this woman? And they explain who she is. Well, he goes up to her and says, listen, you pick as much as you need. I want you to be taken care of. And also, when you're thirsty, I actually want you to come and get water from us. And when you're hungry, you can eat with us. That was a big deal back then. That never happened. And so he just showed her great favor. Well, she heads home, and then Naomi um, says, so what happened? Where did you end up? Whose field did you end up picking in? Because she didn't send her to that field. And this is what Ruth says. Her mother-in-law asked, where did you glean? Where did you work today? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her all about, of course, a woman would tell everything, right? <laughs> um, all about the man, the one whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. And she goes on to say, well, the Lord bless him. 
This man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. And another way to say that is he's a kinsman redeemer. And that's so significant. Let me explain to you what a kinsman redeemer is. A kinsman redeemer is when somebody has, like, when they get married, so she married Elimelech. Well, Elimelech had land. And when they left, that land, when he passed away, that land went on to the sons. And when the sons passed away, no one owns that land. So what happens is the family comes around and the next kinsman can become the redeemer. Is that not cool? So what a great word to remember. He becomes the kinsman redeemer. So she says, oh my goodness, you landed in a field of someone that actually is our relative. So she's very excited about it. So she sends Ruth back again. And Ruth continues to work in that field throughout the whole season. And at the end... Um, they have what's called winnowing. So now they take all that stuff and they grind it up and it's on the threshing floor. That's really important to remember because what happens is all the men come together and do this on the threshing floor and they start to grind the stuff up and they work very hard and the women are not there. And so Naomi has this plan and she says to, um, to Ruth, you go in and what I want you to do Hang on one second. I'll make sure I don't miss this. What I want you to do is go in, and I want you to lay down at his feet. And I want you to ask him to put just the hem of his cloak over your feet. And the hem of a cloak in that time was like asking you to put your blessing or your favor over you. And so she was asking him. That's why when the woman, remember when the woman touches Jesus, the hem of his garment, the hem of it, that was actually very significant because it was a sign of his, what he could do, where, what kind of status he had. And so to ask him to put the hem over her. And then her next instruction to Ruth was, and then just wait. And so can you imagine? I mean, if it was me, I would be really afraid. I would not want to go onto that threshing floor. Women were not allowed in there. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of abuse that happened back then, and a lot of um, harmful things were done to women when they came onto the threshing floor. And so for Ruth to think about going in there to, um, this is very risky, to Boaz, and lay down at his feet, and then just to wait, because there's no predicting what Boaz will do at this point. And so Ruth gets ready, and... She goes over and she goes to this floor and she lays down at his feet when it's dark and she just carefully puts the hem of his cloak over her and she waits and she waits and then he stirs and he wakes up and he looks down and he sees her and he says to her, what, what are you doing here? She says to him, I need a kinsman redeemer and you are the next in line. She explains what she's doing there. And he says, this is what he says to her. He says, wait here, I will go and take care of things. And when the day ends, it will be done and you will be taken care of. So he makes this promise to her and he says, I will go take care of things. So he does. He tells her to leave. He fills up a whole, like he tells her to take her garment and fills up all this food, sends her home with food so that Naomi has food to eat during the day. And she goes home to Naomi, and Naomi says to her, um, you know, what happened? And so she tells her what all happens, and then they wait. And so he goes to the gate, 
and he takes care of business, and this is what he says at the end. It says, then Boaz announces to the elders and all the people, today you are all my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and the sons, and I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or his hometown. And today... You are my witnesses. So he comes back and becomes her redeemer, which is so amazing. He displays this, this loyal love, this hesed love to her. He becomes this redeemer that has um, everlasting. It's a covenant he makes. He moves toward her. It's a sign that he's not, it, it won't end. This is, she is now part of his family and it's such a beautiful picture of who Christ is and what he does. But the story actually doesn't end there. God actually gives the two of them, Ruth and Boaz, a son. And they name the son Obed. Does that ring a bell at all? So then Obed, if that one doesn't, Obed has a son. And his son's name is Jesse. Does that ring a bell? A little bit maybe? Okay, and then Jesse has a son named David. Exactly. And then David is, of course, the line and lineage of Christ. And so when you think of it that way, it's like that tree stump. You know, you just tripped over it and you, oh my goodness, that's so cool. That that is exactly where Jesus comes from. And I love that. So when I studied for this story, there were three, like, really um, extraordinary characteristics about this Hesed love that I don't want you to miss. And unfortunately, I am not a speaker that usually gives you the to-do list. I'm a, I'm a let's feel things. And, and I think for me, when I studied this story, it was that um, revelation of God's love for me that God would have a kinsman redeemer love for me, an extraordinary love for me, was amazing. I was overwhelmed by that. It's, it's something you almost can't describe to someone. Um, when I send people down to Haiti on our trips, a lot of times they say to me, so what are we going to do down there? Like, when are you going to tell us what we're going to do and accomplish? And I always say, I know I'm telling you that you just got to go and experience it, and God is going to absolutely change your life, and I can't explain it. I don't know how to explain how the Holy Spirit does this work in you and you come back a different person, but you will. I know, but what will I do? Uh, well, you, it's, you probably won't do much, actually. But you're going to actually see and experience what God's doing down there and it's going to absolutely change you. That's how I feel about this story. That's how I feel about it because I feel like it's a description of God's love for you. And so for you to hear the story and see the story in a different way. So I want to show you the three things. I really believe that Hesed has no requirements. That's what the first thing I get out of the story. And the reason is because when I started to read more about Ruth and the fact that she is not an Israelite, that's a big deal. Back then, you did not marry outside of the Israelite clan. And so if you weren't an Israelite and you married someone outside of that, that was a huge no-no. And so for her to become a part grafted into that, to me, says that God doesn't require us to be a certain way, that he doesn't have requirements. Even when you look at Ruth, and you look at Ruth coming to Boaz, 
He did not ask her for her credentials. He didn't say, have you changed your religion? Are you going to be here for a while? He didn't say that at all. The, the picture that it gives is that Boaz looks at her and says, you can eat here. I will be your redeemer. He doesn't require anything of her. So when I think about, like, even, you know, Troy and I dating, when, when we first started dating, I felt like, well, and probably everyone feels this way, I think. You want to put on your best. You, you, you clean up, you put on your nice clothes. You, you certainly wouldn't go without doing your hair, or your makeup, um, at least for grown women. Well, maybe men too. I suppose you do your hair too. Detroit had it easy. Come on now. Um, actually, he had a mullet <laughs> when I first married him. <laughs> that took work, I'm just saying. <laughs> Up on the top, party in the back. Okay. Um, but I did. I, I made sure that I looked good. And by the time we got married, I'd let things slide a little bit. But you know, it's kind of a little shocker when they see you without your makeup on. But what I love about this is that God says, I'll take you that way. I'll take you exactly that way. You do not have to do anything. I'll take you in your sweatpants. And I'll take you with the addiction you have. And I'll take you with the sins that you deal with every day. And I'll take you with the challenges that come into your life. And I'll take you, I don't care how you look, I'll take you right now. I'll take you right now because you're worth it. That's what I loved about this story. That's what I got out of this story. That was the first one. It says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you're a sinner, he died for you. He did not wait for you to figure that out and get it all straightened out and put it aside and make it look pretty. He died for you just the way you are. I love that about this story. The second thing would be that Hesed has absolutely no limits. When I think about God's Hesed love, there's no limits to what he would do for us. Um, it's such a beautiful picture. Um, it says in Jeremiah 31.3, here, let me pull it up for you. It says, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you, I've drawn you with unfailing kindness. An everlasting love, an unfailing kindness. We just don't experience that in a human relationship. It's impossible. But with God, that is a different love. There are no limits to his love. Um, we talked with someone who lost a loved one this past week, and they are angry. They're really, really angry with God. And my answer was, that's okay. He doesn't mind that you're angry. He can handle it. He can handle your anger. He just wants you to interact with him. Just tell him that. Tell him you're angry. You don't understand why. I'm asking the same question. Why? Why? Why did that have to happen? That's okay to ask those questions. To me, that's the no limit. Spurgeon says that when you know the passage is referring to you, it tells you that it's a marvelous loving kindness. It tells you that God's mind is occupied with you. There's a verse in the Bible that says he has your name tattooed on the palm of his hand. Isn't that beautiful? To me, if I had, I have something, I have a tattoo in my arm that says present, to be present in the moment. Well, I see it all the time, and it reminds me. I think of my name being on his hand. Well, I'm on his mind then, if it's on his hand. If your name is on his hand, he, you are on his mind. Isn't that amazing when you think about that? 
And I think what I love, too, about this story, you guys, is that Ruth is just a normal person like you and I. Very, very ordinary. Boaz, a farmer. He's just a farmer. We always think, well, these Bible characters, if they made it in the Bible, they must be pretty amazing people. But he really was just a farmer and that he extended his hand out to Ruth. I love that. So when you look at this story, Ruth is just a 12th century BC lady who happened to work in a field that was owned by Boaz. Do you think that was a mistake? I don't think so. I think that's pretty amazing. And then that Boaz would... um, would take her as his wife and then have the child that would be the lineage of, of Christ. I think that's pretty amazing. Alistair Begg puts it this way. It's crazy that God would choose ordinary people to unfold his plan for you and I. We wouldn't probably put together the incarnation of God by picking Joseph and Mary. Extraordinary God would come to ordinary people such as Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and no-name Joseph and Mary to bring God Almighty down to earth. It's unbelievable. It's the very unbelievable nature of God to make it so compellingly believable. It's ordinary, but I'm encouraged because I am ordinary. You are ordinary, yet God sees you and he knows you and your name is written on his hand. There are no limits to his marvelous loving kindness. The last thing would be this. I think God's love, that Hesed love, is not logical. You cannot um, make sense of it. Um, it says here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this, What I determined to load up on wisdom and examine everything taking place on earth, I realized that if you keep your eyes open day and night without even blinking, you'll still never figure out the meaning of what God is doing on this earth. Of course not. How would we figure that out unless it was, I mean, Boaz didn't know that he was now walking in this path that God had before him. It says, search as hard as you like, you're not going to make sense of it, no matter how smart you are. You won't get to the bottom of it. And then it says in Philippians, when you experience his love, it says then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. Have you ever felt that peace from God that you really cannot explain to someone? It's very difficult to put into words. There, that is Hesed love. That is God's love towards you. That is a love that's hard to put into words. And I feel like sometimes we take our faith and we take out that love part of it and it's just the um, fire insurance, as we call it. Uh, I'll make this exchange so that I don't end up in hell, that, that kind of thing. But I feel like don't take love out of this covenant that God's making with us. So it's not logical. It definitely doesn't have any limits and there's no requirements to it. So when I try to make sense of it, there's actually quite a bit of mystery to it. But when I think about you guys walking away with this story, I think about challenging you with the idea that in order to understand this, you actually have to put yourself into that vulnerable position that Naomi did. You have to come to Christ at his feet. You have to say, I am willing to to go and wait and see what God will do. There has to be that moment, that act. It's got to be a time in your life where you say, am I going to accept this kinsman redeemer? Am I going to allow him to infiltrate my life and take over? 
or am I going to hang on to the control and not let him? So my question to you as you, you we finish up this morning is, um, have you claimed your Redeemer? And I think there's an act to that. I actually think you have to come down onto your knees and curl up at his feet. When we go to communion this morning, there's communion around the room. I think when you go there and pick up that bread and dip it in there and you reflect on it, what I want you to do is take time in your heart to, to, to lay down at his feet, to curl up, and pull his cloak over you, and lay down, and I want you to think, have I actually asked him to be my kinsman redeemer? This is a very vulnerable position to put yourself in. Why don't you close your eyes with me? Father, I come before you on behalf of this group here. And, and God, we want to look differently at your love for us. We want to be amazed. We want to embrace what you've done for us. And so, God, as we come before you and reflect on what you've done, we ask, God, that you reveal yourself. That you reveal yourself not only through the story of Ruth, but through all the other stories that we've read. And I ask this all in your name. Amen.